If you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So in this Advent series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Christmas story, and in particular, the different uh, characters in the Christmas story. So last week, Tim talked about the shepherds, and if you weren't here for that or you missed that, I just encourage you to go to redemptionaz.com, click on the Gilbert uh, section, and you can look at past messages and sermons and, and, and see where Tom or see where Tim took us last week. But we learned that through the shepherds that the gospel comes to the outcast. The shepherds were on the lowest social rung of the ladder there. The gospel comes to the outcast. And, and today we're going to look at Mary and we're going to see how the gospel comes by grace. The gospel comes by grace. Let me pray for us. Uh, God would just help us this morning and speak to us uh, through his word. Father God, we love you. And um, God, I just pray now that as we open your word, um, God, that you would do what only you can do. This is always such a peculiar place for me to stand um, because I am expecting and anticipating something supernatural to happen. God, I'm asking you by your spirit to illuminate your word. God, that it will do exactly what every individual person needs for it to do in their lives and in their heart. God, some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be convicted. Some of us need to be challenged. God, we all need for our affection for you to be stirred up. And God, that, that doesn't happen by me or through me. Um, so Spirit of God, I just pray that you'd move with freedom and with power at this time. God, just control me, cover me, I pray. God, help me. Um, have mercy on us all. Um, Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I was born into a uh, faith tradition where Mary had a very significant role in the church and in our faith. And while I believe there is a danger in elevating people beyond a role that the Bible assigns to them, I think Protestants should see Mary as an extremely interesting, relevant, and formative character in the scripture. And I believe that we learn much about the gospel through her story. Like I said, she's very interesting to me. I see in Luke chapter one that she is the willing heroine of the ultimate and true fairy tale. She is this commoner who is adopted and grafted into the royal family. She's poor yet chosen. She's humble yet favored. She is the subject of great suffering and tragic loss in John chapter 19. And she is witness to the greatest triumph of all time in Matthew chapter 28. Mary is the Christ carrier. She is the first Christ carrier. Her body, yet sinful, fallen, flawed, she carried our Lord into the world. And out of her body was birthed peace. Out of her broken earthly body was birthed joy, pure joy personified. Out of her body, love, the very essence of God himself, entered the world. And we see her in Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We'll put the scripture up on the screen if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and this virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, one of the phrases most echoed from heaven, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So scholars will tell us that they believe Mary was somewhere between 13, 17 years old. So this teenage girl, probably about 14 years old. She's from Nazareth. And Nazareth is so unknown, so small, that Luke has to help us out. And he's saying, look, it's, it's, it's near Galilee. It, it'd be like a lot of times when I travel, I'll tell people I live in Gilbert. They're not really familiar where Gilbert is. So I got to say, well, it's near Phoenix. It's, it's like that. Except this would be even more extreme. It'd be like if you were from Black Canyon City. If you're visiting from Black Canyon City, thank you for making the trip today. Um, we'd be like, I'm from Black Canyon City. Well, where is that? It's near Phoenix. It's that, it's that kind of extreme. So Mary is this poor Middle Eastern young girl. And we know she's poor because when her and Joseph go to the temple, the, Luke tells us that the offering that they bring is they bring two pigeons, which is the, like the lowest acceptable offering that you could bring to the temple. And I just think it's so interesting to me that God chose to come into our world through what we would now call lower class. That the greatest news in all of human history breaks forth and it goes to this young, poor, Middle Eastern girl. And it's good for us to consider Mary, to look at Mary. We need to look at Mary. We need to look at this homeless mother who gives birth to the king of kings in a stable we need to look at Mary, who is a, who's a refugee mother fleeing to Egypt. It reminds us of a truth that I think we can too quickly forget. Because it seems to me that sometimes the American church is enamored with money and prestige in a way that Jesus is, is not. A lot of times we can think, well, if you have money, if you have power, if you have position, you must have made better decisions. You must be a better person. Because if you don't have those things, then you must not have tried very hard. But the Christmas story says to me that God cares very little for the things that we think are so significant, so important. God cares very little for what we think is so powerful, things like status, things like expertise or fame or fortune or what's popular. In Mary's song, which we'll read in just a moment, she tells us he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Her son James would later reiterate to us that favoritism has no place in the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that God delights to make himself and his power known and perfected in weakness. And we have to be careful because I fear that sometimes we can care far more about how we present ourselves to the world than how we actually care for those that the world presents to us. We need to be careful how we hold up or present worldly things as more significant when they are a little significance to God. The gospel simply seen in Mary's story is this. Mary, you are a sinner. You are poor. But God is pouring out grace on you through Christ Jesus. Look at verse 31 with me. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary has a very appropriate response to this. She says to the angel in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, you could take issue with Mary's question. Because you could say, well, isn't that, is she doubting? Is she doubting God? I mean, she says, look, God, I know how biology works. 
I'm a virgin. How am I supposed to have a baby? Because Zechariah, if you look earlier in chapter 1, Zechariah has a similar conversation with the angel. God told Zechariah that he and his wife would have a son. The problem with Zechariah and his wife was that they're both octogenarians. And so Zechariah says, how can this be true? I'm an old man and my wife, she's advanced in years, which is the way you're supposed to talk about your wife's age. (laughs) Zechariah says that and Gabriel puts him in a timeout for nine months. But yet, what does Mary get? Look at the treatment that she gets in verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, that's Zechariah's wife. And, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then verse 37 is an incredible, incredible statement. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary gets an explanation. Zechariah gets the mute button. So why does that happen? I think it's because there's two kind of doubts. There's a bad doubt and there's a good doubt. There's a kind of doubt that grows out of disbelief. And that's a doubt that is defiant. That's a doubt that's that's proud. It's a, it's a doubt that looks inward. It's a doubt that has bitterness. I think that's what Zechariah was saying. He's saying, God, there's no way that this can be true. And then there is this doubt that grows out of this humble wonder. It's a doubt that looks up with awe and, and, and says, how can these things be true? God, God, I don't understand, but I'm ready to learn from you. And that was, that was Mary. Um, There's a pastor author called Tim Keller, and he says it's the difference between dishonest doubt and honest doubt. Dishonest doubt and honest doubt. Dishonest doubt, he says, is proud and lazy. It responds to the revelation of God by saying that's impossible, or we would say that's just crazy, or that's just silly, and then it just walks away. It, it, it just kind of makes these proud assertions about the revelation of God. Dishonest doubt is closed-minded. It, can, it refuses to consider um, the possibility or the power of God. But by contrast, honest doubts, he says, are humble because they lead you to ask genuine questions. They don't just put up this defiant wall. When you ask a real question, it puts you in a place of humility and vulnerability. Honest doubts are open to belief. Now, what if God gives you an answer that kind of shatters your categories or you don't have a, you don't have a box for it? You don't, you, don't, you don't feel like you can give up what his answer is asking you to give up. You see, if you're really asking God from humble doubt for insight on who he is and what he does, he might just give it to you. That, that's what, to me, is so awesome here because in an answer to Mary's honest, humble doubt, the angel gives her one of the greatest faith-building statements in all of the scripture. Nothing will be impossible with God. And the only reason that Mary gets this extra revelation is because she asks from this humble doubt. And what happens in your life, too, God may give you an answer that is a blessing to you but is also a blessing to others. And many of you in this room, you come, and especially Christmas, kind of tends to kick up some of these doubts. And that might be why you wandered in here today because you have these doubts. Okay, God, why are you doing this in my life? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Why are you allowing this to happen in a world? Why are these things happening? What's going on? And my question is, are your doubts humble? Are your doubts open enough to the possibility of a God who might give you uncomfortable answers? 
There's a pastor named J.D. Greer, and he says this. He says, you have doubts, but are you willing to doubt your doubts? Are you willing to doubt your doubts? And what he's saying is the problem is not the doubt. It is the proud, self-centered heart behind the doubt. So are you willing to doubt your doubts? Because that's what Mary did. Look at verse 38. And we, we see that through her response in verse 38. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. And then Mary composes this beautiful song in verse 46. And we'll look at that. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Now listen, here is a poor teenage girl who lives under the rule and the reign of tyranny. Now listen to this song that she's singing about God. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. All right, so looking at Mary's example, there's three things quickly that I, that I think we learn about the gospel that we see from the gospel in Mary's story. The first way that we see the gospel in Mary's story is that the gospel comes to the world by the favor of God. The gospel comes into the world and to the world by the favor of God or by grace. You'll hear us talk about that a lot. This unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God, the superabundance of God himself, grace. That's how the gospel comes into the world. The angel starts his command to Mary and says, don't fear because you have the favor of God. And that's so important because it's the key to everything else. Now you gotta think about Mary's situation that she's in. So angel shows up, you've got the favor of God, makes this incredible announcement. I realize you're a virgin, but you're gonna be pregnant. So you have to, again, kind of put yourself into the story and realize just what this means, the implications of this for Mary. So she's pregnant with no husband in a culture where this is not just frowned upon. That's not just, oh, that's just not socially cool. It's punishable by death. The man she loves, Joseph, is probably not going to understand this situation. And he will most likely leave her. So she's already poor. Now she's going to be pregnant. If Joseph rejects her, she'll be completely destitute, which means she'll be homeless. She'll have to beg to survive. So she's financially insolvent. She has a ruined reputation, and her most important relationship is falling apart. But yet she rejoices in the favor of God. How does she do that? Because of what the angel says to her. A son is being born to her, a son, the angel said, whose name you will call Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So what if her main problem was not her finances or a bad reputation, but her main problem was a severed relationship with God and she just got news that Jesus is coming to restore that. So for you this morning, could it be and could you consider that your main problem is not the financial hardship, is not the reputation issue, 
It's not even the, the relationship that might end, but that this might be your biggest problem this morning, a severed relationship with God that can only be put back together, the person of Jesus Christ. The fact that her pregnancy puts her under a curse of death is supposed to be a picture for us. Jesus was born to a woman under the curse of death. We, the whole human race, were under the curse of death and Jesus was born to us and would grow up to take that curse in our place. And the son, the angel says, he will not only save his people from their sins, but he will rule from the throne of David in verse 32. And to, to the Jews, David's throne symbolized the restoration of worldwide peace and blessing, this condition called shalom, this reweaving, this integration, this restoring of, of all things. And for us, we long to see the curse of sin removed for the world. We, we have pain in this world, and, and the promise of God is that he will reverse it. He says it to the prophet Joel, I will restore what the swarming, swarming locusts have eaten in, verse, in chapter two, verse 25. Not just forgive, I will restore. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse four, he says, they will bring back your sons and daughters from afar, relationships will be restored. In eternity, these bodies that are destroyed by disease will leap and run in perfect help. Reputations that have been ruined are restored. Wrongs will be made right. We read this book to our kids called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and when it talks about this, it uses this phrase that everything sad will come untrue. And, and the language is a little awkward, and it's supposed to be. And it, it doesn't mean that you'll forget everything that happened. It just means that the feeling of loss and permanent damage will be removed, and you'll see that God's actually using that for our ultimate good and for his glory. And I think because Mary was able to go through these things, she goes through this unjust death sentence. She goes through a hardship that seems impossible. She got to understand Jesus more by going through what she went through and that seeing the truth of what this angel says to her, nothing is impossible with God. He, the angel even brings up in 36 Elizabeth's barrenness. Now, why would he do that? Why is that in there? Because for a woman in this time to die barren, it presented one of the most devastating disappointments in all of life. And part of the lead up to the birth of Jesus is this elderly barren woman who gets pregnant because the birth of Jesus is God's promise to erase our deepest disappointments ultimately. And I know that for, for Christmas season, this is extremely difficult for many, many people. Because it's a season that you tend to feel more acutely pain and loss and disappointment. But for those whose hope is in Jesus, Christmas is a reminder that our hope is the expectation of future blessings and the confidence that is the best is yet to come because Jesus is a reminder to us that with God, nothing is impossible. And the hope that is found in embracing the favor of God given to you in Christ. So that phrase, favor of God, what does that mean? Because there's a lot of different pastors who will kind of throw that phrase on. You might hear like, okay, I got a, I got a parking spot, Santan Mall, favor of God, right? Is that, is that what he's talking about there? What is, this, what is the favor of God? The favor of God is this, that God through Jesus has restored your relationship with him, has promised you restoration of all things and is working all things for your ultimate good now. That's the favor of God that was spoken over Mary. It's the favor of God that's spoken over the children of God. Mary is not favored or sinless because of her conception. Mary does not bestow grace. She's not responsible for our redemption. She's not to be the subject of our prayers. That teaching is not found in the scripture. That, that is a teaching that makes dogma from tradition and it defies what the 
what the scripture clearly teaches, that all have sinned, that there is no righteous except for Jesus. Mary is not great in this passage because she is sinless. Mary is great here because she was a sinner who found favor with God. Now can you, and I want you, and I hope as you're kind of hearing the story of Mary that you're thinking about Mary. Because can you, can you imagine her getting this news? If, if Mary was sinless and Gabriel shows up and says, you're highly favored, guess what? She would have said, yeah, no kidding, I'm sinless. What took you so long to get here? No, she hears this news um, and it is, it terrifies her. She has to ponder it. She has to think about it because grace is disruptive. Now imagine Mary, she has to make this announcement to her family. Hey everybody, um, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, still a virgin. Not only am I pregnant, I'm pregnant with the son of God. His kingdom will have no end. Can you imagine this announcement that she's making? Some of you, you've had children. Remember when you had your first child and you just, you like thought, you had a moment of quiet and stillness and you thought about, I have to raise this human being. I have to raise a child. How daunting that is, how big that is. When our first daughter, Evangeline, was born, uh, she had some breathing issues right after she was born, and so they kind of took her right out of the living room, put her in this special room with special equipment and special hoses and a special oxygen thing and all these special people and all this stuff, and she was there for a few days. And I remember I'd go in there, and I'd stand over her, and I'm looking around, and there's a lot of people around who clearly know what they're doing. They've gone to school for a long time. They know how to read the reports. They know where the hoses go. They know what to do all this stuff. And I just remember thinking, what in the world is going on? And then a few days later, breathing cleared up, we were able to take her home. And they hand her to me, and I put her in her little car seat, and I get in the car and start to drive home. It, it's, it's crazy. Like, your drive to the hospital is like the most frantic, crazy, fast drive ever, and your drive home is like the slowest, everybody else on the road's a maniac type drive. And I just remember kind of talking to my wife. I was like, hey, do you think any of those people from the hospital will like come by and check on us? Like, will we get any help there? I mean, it was easier for me to get a driver's license than it was for me to, you know. So I, I, just, I just remember like the, the task of like, we, ha- we have to raise this, this person. Could, could, you, could you imagine what Mary is thinking? It's terrible, it's frightening. Grace can be frightening. John Piper says, the highest, most precious gifts of God do not always come to us in attractive colors. Grace can perplex. Grace can frighten. The grace of healing might have the face of chemotherapy. The grace of patience might have the face of pain. The grace of humility might have the face of defeat. And we need to learn from Mary not to lash out at God for the frightening forms of grace. God's favor isn't always easy. Sometimes, as we see with Mary, it includes a lot of difficulties. But it's always good because it brings you all the promises and the presence of Jesus. In Mary's story, we see that the gospel comes to the world by the favor of God, by the grace of God. 
Secondly, we see in Mary's story that the gospel is received in faith or in confidence in who God is. The gospel is received in faith. Look at verse 38. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Our response is to be like Mary. Lord, I'm yours. Let it be done according to your word. God, this is frightening. I don't understand, but I believe with a heart of faith, with confidence in who you are, that you are going to bestow grace to me in this. And so the question for you today is, what frightening work of grace is God doing in your life? Are you jobless? Do you have health issues? Do you have relationship issues? Do you have a wayward spouse or a wayward son or a wayward daughter? Are you going to lose your home? Are you going to lose your life? Are you looking out at your life right now and you're just crying out to God, like, God, God, what are you doing? What is going on? Verse 37 is your answer. Nothing is impossible with God. God is going to do a work of grace in your life. And if that frightens you, that's good because Mary was frightened. And we do like she does. We look up and say, I receive your grace and I submit to your word. Let it be so. She stares up in wonder and she meditates on that phrase, nothing is impossible with God. Think about the size of God. He is so big that he speaks the universe into existence. And when he does, he designs all the complexity of the atom, all, all, all the, the rules of quantum physics, all of those things in a, in a moment He's so big, but yet at the same time, he's intimately acquainted with every single detail of your life as well. And you peer into that and you say, nothing is impossible with God. I'm claiming the promises of God. What, what are the promises of God that you're struggling with here this morning? Is, is it Psalm 23, verse six, where the psalmist says, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Is it Isaiah 43, two, where God says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And, and when, they, when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Is it Jeremiah 29, 13? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Is it Romans 8, 28? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Is it Romans 8, 35? Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Romans 8, 32, Paul says to us, he who did not spare his own son, he didn't withhold from us that which was most precious. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, all of us who had committed treason against the king. How will he not also, as if that wasn't enough, Paul says, along with him, who's him? His precious son, along with him, how will he not also graciously, which means ridiculously, give us all things. He that did not spare his own son. I've got a four-year-old boy named Silas. Do you know how much I would have to love someone for me to offer him up for execution? That person does not exist on planet Earth. There is, there is not a person, there is not a person where I would say, here's my little boy. You committed treason against me. You've sinned against me. You've offended against me. Here's my son. Here's my son to pay for that crime. It does not exist. And, and, and Paul says, not only that, 
but graciously give you all things that you need. There's a pastor, he says, when you have doubt, doubt with faith. And he's talking about the posture of your heart behind your doubt. And what we learn from Mary is, look, you doubt and you stare into your doubt, but then you stare into the face of God, realizing his size and his greatness and his love. And you ask your questions and leave room for a God whose power and wisdom are far beyond our own and search the scripture and see what those answers might be. In Mary's story, we see that the gospel comes into the world by the favor of God. We see that it is received in faith or confidence in God. And lastly, we see that the gospel demands a life surrendered to God. The gospel demands a life surrendered to God. Now, this angel, even though he brought really good news to Mary, he said, you are favored, you found favor with God. He demanded full surrender from Mary. For example, he tells Mary what Jesus' name is gonna be. I mean, that's one of the highlights of being a parent, right? You get to choose, get to pick. I get to name my kid, and I'm going to name them something that hopefully sets them up. I, I name them something that, that, that's, a, that's a hope for them. When, when Lauren and I were sitting down to name our kids, they, the names all were significant to us because they were, they were hopes that we had for our, our kid. We want them to experience love. We want them to experience grace, and so our kids have those, have those names. But the angel says, not on this one. God's calling the shots. And that's a picture for us because if you're gonna have the blessing of Jesus in your life, then you have to surrender fully and let God call the shots in your life, even in the most intimate relationships and even in the deepest dreams. And Mary's response is what our response needs to be. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. That's the posture of a servant. A servant says, I have nothing. It's all yours. Let it be according to your will and to your word. There's really only two positions that you can take with the Lord. You can either have full surrender or rebellion. Those are the only two stances that you can have with God, full surrender or rebellion. You can't negotiate your way into the favor of God. And a lot of people try to do that. They'll just think, okay, well, I'll just be good or I'll just give up this pile of things over here or I'll just try to do better or I'll just try to shape up. And what we do, and what we, do, we try to bend Jesus around our life, but that's not the way that it works. We try to bend Jesus around our desires, or we try to bend Jesus around our hopes, or our dreams, or our plans, or our agenda. And God says, all of those things are to orbit around me. That is the deal that I'll make with you. All of Jesus for complete and total control of your life. I have no idea what kind of situation you are in here this morning. Maybe you feel like you're kind of in this Mary situation. And I can tell you that if you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, everything that the angel said to Mary applies to you. The favor of God is on you if you are a follower of Jesus. The gospel is found in knowing that you have the favor in Christ, so believe it. Don't just have this mental assent to it. She, it says in Luke chapter, nine, chapter 2, verse 19, that Mary treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. Ponder it until it completely reshapes your thinking. There's an illustration I heard this week, and, and this goes like this. Imagine that you get a notice that a relative that you didn't know existed had left you a sum of money and an inheritance. And because you didn't really know who he was, he was a long-distant uncle or something like that, and he deposited the money into an account that you don't really check as like the savings account you don't really look at, you just didn't even pay any mind. You just figured, because I don't really know him, uh, it's probably just something token, probably like 100 bucks or something that's really not even worth checking out. So you continue to go through life, and 
you struggle and you struggle just trying to make ends meet. And then one day you do happen to go and glance at that account. And this account that this long-distant relative deposited money into now shows a balance of $100 million. And this whole time, that money has been sitting there while you've been struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling. And all this time, you had that. You just weren't living with an awareness of it. A lot of times, I'm like that in my relationship with Jesus. It's not that I don't know. It's not that I don't know. It's that I act like it's not true. And so a lot of times I have to pray, God, help me know what I already know. Help me to know what I already know to be true about you. And help what I know to, uh, what, that I already know to be true about you that reshape my heart, my attitudes, my behavior, the disappointments, the things that I'm unwilling to take my hands off of. Help me to know what I already know in you so that I can give up all that I have, realizing that all that I need is in you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? And he says, whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, whoever finally lays down all individualism beside the manger, whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, that is the person who will celebrate Christmas correctly. And that is found in a very simple prayer that Mary prays, behold, I am your servant. Let it be done according to your word. I embrace your favor in Christ and I know that nothing is impossible with you, God. And it all began with this visit to this poor Middle Eastern girl who said, let it be with me according to your word. Mary gives us this incredible picture of what can happen if we trust and we believe that God can do things that we can't even imagine. So as we close, Christian, I think the Christmas story, Mary's story, gives us something to do. I think there's something for the follower of Jesus that's very important that we need to learn out of this Christmas story. This Christmas story is messy. This is a messy story. It's a story originally of alienation and political tyranny, of homelessness, working class people, pagans, angels. It includes the magi, or magicians. They were these astrologers. So think about this. Some of the first people to show up and call Jesus king were these astrologers. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? Because God seems to be comfortable with strangers and with people who are strange. There's all kinds of weird people who show up in the Christmas story. And God's totally okay with it. The wise men were most likely not kings, um, but there is a king in the story, a man named Herod. Herod is a king who slaughters hundreds of babies in an attempt to kill Jesus. A lot of times we skip the story of Herod as we're decorating our trees and turn on our Christmas music and trying to make all the warm fuzzies so that we can experience Jesus at Christmas, so that we can keep Christ in Christmas. But the only way to keep Christ in Christmas is if we keep Herod in it too. Because that is the world that Jesus chose to enter. He chose to enter our broken, messed up world, our broken, messed up lives. Not the best possible versions of ourselves and our homes that we present at Christmas time. The only kind of Christmas that Christ seems interested in residing in is one that includes a poor Middle Eastern teenage peasant girl these outcast shepherds, weird fortune tellers, and Herod, 
a corrupt politician who's responsible for a massacre. That's a world that really doesn't sound too different from ours today, does it? We still have corrupt politicians. We still are committing massacres. Our world is still messed up and hurting. We are still messed up and hurting. That is why we keep Christ in Christmas. Christmas is a labor and delivery story. And birthing is messy and dangerous. And Violet Jed, who's playing guitar for us this morning, he leads worship for 710. When, right after they had their baby about four months ago, I went and saw him in the hospital room. And I was like, so man, how was that? And he's like, that was way more violent than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and that's, that's what birthing is. And birthing is work. And the world needs it now more than ever. And in this young girl's waiting, in, in Mary's waiting, heavy with expectation, she invites you and I to wait and to labor and to carry the heaviness and to look and to hope and then to remain a little bit longer. And she reminds us that we are empowered and overshadowed by the Holy Spirit to be a Christ carrier because our world still needs Christ carriers, we who are commoners, adopted and grafted into the royal family, we who are poor yet chosen, humble yet favored, the subjects of suffering and trials and witnesses to the greatest triumph ever known. We are Christ carriers taking Jesus in our broken bodies to the most broken places and broken people in the world. And through Mary's story, we hear God saying to us, greetings, you are highly favored and I am with you. Do not be afraid. God is mindful of you. And when all you seem to hear is there's no room, there's no room, there's no room for you, remember that God has made room for you. And I don't know why there's still Herods in the world, and I don't know why there are still massacres, but we wait and we carry Christ to the most unlikely places, to the barns, to the mangers, and to the most unlikely people, to the mystic seekers, to the outcast shepherds, heavy with Jesus, carrying the hope of the world to the world. And even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for Mary. And um, God, thank you for what we learned from her this morning. God, in your word, um, God, I'm so challenged by her just humble posture and her response, God, to this impossible thing that you task her with. Um, and, and God, I just thank you for the response that you give from heaven to her and to us. God, that nothing is impossible with you. And so God, would we be a people who like Mary humbly walk through this world carrying the hope and the message of life found in Jesus. God, not relying on our own strength and not clamoring for our own fame or our own position or our own power or whatever it is that we chase after, God. But what we walk through this world, God, knowing and resting in your favor and your grace over us. Jesus, we love you. Help us with this, I pray in your name. Amen.